Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I am the one doing the bulletin now, with many thanks to Elaine Strauss for having done it for so long, but I strive for accuracy and plead for mercy because looks like I got a few corrections to make. So Monday, not tomorrow, but next Monday is the start of the life group here in the church. Am I correct? Okay, so that'll be, that'll be in the bulletin. We got the Van de Guts on Wednesday. I forgot this Wednesday, sorry, but I'll be there this Wednesday. Yeah, well. Um, Thursday, we do have to move the prayer group to the church for Thursday because our house will be empty Thursday afternoon. I'm off to do a wedding this weekend. And Mops is coming soon. And that's what we're putting, coming soon, because we know it's coming. I put the board meeting as the 15th. Is that correct, or did we settle on the 22nd now? 22nd, okay. Like I say, plead for mercy. No, it's two, actually. I'm counting. October 22nd. Okay. Alrighty. Oh, yes, dear? Oh, there's the third strike. Oh, you already told me that one, though. I got a note here. I didn't say it. No, we're back Sunday, not Monday. Alrighty. Actually, no, double check that one. I put a new phone number in there because we now have a local number. You can call us and not have to call long distance. 923 is actually a local prefix. So, yeah, got you on that one. Alrighty. My pastor friend had hot air hand dryers installed in the restrooms at his church. But after two weeks, he took them out. I asked him why, and he confessed that they worked fine, but when he went in there, he saw a sign taped to one of them that said, for a sample of this week's sermon, push the button. I like the delayed reaction there. There was a little bit and then there was more. One more for you. Three boys were bragging about how smart their fathers were. One of them said, my father is a great professor. When he's talking about his subject, only 10 people in the world can understand him. The second boy said, my father is a great brain surgeon. Whenever he's talking about brain surgery, only five people in the world knows what he's really saying. The third boy said, I got you both beat. My father is a pastor, and when he talks, nobody really understands what he's saying. Okay, you like the first one more. I'll make a note of that. Turning to the Word, Philippians chapter 1. We're in the middle of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Father God, teach us from your word, we pray. Amen. Professional golfer Paul Azinger was diagnosed with cancer at age 33. He had just won the PGA Championship and had 10 tournament victories to his credit. He wrote, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me even harder. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf become me became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. Then he remembered something that Larry Moody, who teaches a Bible study on the tour, had said to him. Zinger, we're not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying, trying to get to the land of the living. Golfer Paula Zinger recovered from chemotherapy and returned to the PGA Tour. He did pretty well, but that bout with cancer deepened his perspective. He wrote, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour. I've won a lot of tournaments, but that happiness is always temporary. The only way you'll ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and I don't have problems, but I feel like I've found the answer to the six-foot hole. In our study of Philippians that we're going through, the Apostle Paul is in the middle of sharing with the Philippian church about his current situation. So far, he shared that as far as his work goes, everything is great. His being in prison hasn't hindered the spread of the gospel in any way. In, in the contrary, it has opened doors that otherwise would have remained closed to him. The emperor's own troops are hearing the gospel. The Christians in Rome are getting more involved in spreading the word, and even though motives are suspect with some of the preachers, the gospel is getting preached. He now moves in this chapter to how he as a person is faring under the pressure of his captivity and upcoming trial. He's facing a life or death battle because if his upcoming trial goes poorly, he could be executed. It's a very personal passage. In that short reading I did for you, he refers to himself 20 times within those eight verses. He talks about everything, how he feels, what he wants to live for, who he cares about, his mental condition as he faces his trial. There's only a few passages in the whole Bible that parallel Paul's personal openness in this paragraph. 
And through it all, he maintains his focus on Christ and the church in Philippi. In each of the three thoughts in this passage, both Christ and the Philippians are central to what he has to say and how he has to say it. We start in the middle of verse 18 because for some odd reason, the church leader that actually took the time to split the Bible up into the verses that we know centuries ago, put the beginning of the sentence of this paragraph into verse 18. The last half of verse 18 is really the first part of the paragraph we're looking at today. Paul is rejoicing in the spreading of the gospel. And now he moves into his own predicament by affirming that he will still rejoice, no matter what happens to him. Paul's not the type that would have written this to appease the worries of others. He's truly rejoicing at what he's facing. He sees so much opportunity here for Christ to be made known, and since that's what he's been living for, he's welcoming his upcoming trial. He continues by sharing that he's not alone in the trial, but that the Philippians and the Holy Spirit are with him as well. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He's affirming that the prayers of the Philippians are having an effect. Perhaps the Philippians were showing signs of helplessness and not being able to get Paul out of jail. Maybe they needed to be reminded that despite the distance between them, Prayer bridges that gap and makes a difference. Whatever the case, Paul is certain, he's certain that they share with God, that what they share with God, their prayers, are directly helping him in his ordeal. He then shares that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is also helping him. This Spirit is the Holy Spirit, given by Jesus to those who follow him. Paul refers to him in this way to acknowledge both his work and the Savior who brings him into our lives. The two work so closely together, it can become very hard to tell who is doing what and where. A basic rule of thumb to follow is that Jesus, when he saves our souls, leaves us with the Holy Spirit to help us live Christian lives. When we pray, it is the Holy Spirit who works in our life, giving us strength, wisdom, patience, whatever it may be. And all of this is under the influence of God the Father, our Creator. All three are part of our lives, part of our faith, part of our future. The three work so closely together that just when you think you're glimpsing one of them, you end up looking at one of the others. And that's not a bad thing. The confusion's okay. We're not always meant to know how everything works. There is a thing called faith here. As long as we remember that the bottom line is that when we pray, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will hear and help. 
What comes out in this verse is that the prayers of the people and the help of the Spirit are intimately related. They work together to build Paul up and prepare him for what's before him. When people pray, God does act. These prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit are meant to lead to one thing. Paul's deliverance from his current situation. And there's two facets to this. He wants salvation from imprisonment, but he also wants vindication that what he stood for is right. The great thing about his situation is that he will be delivered or saved, whether he wins or loses the trial ahead. If he wins, his release from prison will give him his freedom. It will also show that the message he preaches has integrity. If he loses, his execution will live to the fulfillment of his salvation. And his vindication will be his joining Christ in heaven. He feels he's in a win-win situation. He's just waiting to see how it all unfolds. The next verse reveals his driving hope. One of my friends made this his life verse in Bible college. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's anticipating the trial with an eagerness to see Christ honored. He's like the kid who's about to play the final playoff game in hockey. He's been taught how to skate by his dad. He wants so badly to win this game for him. He makes sure that the skates are on tight, the blades are clean and sharp. The gear is all in the right places. He tightens up all the straps and heads out onto the ice. Confident. Yet the excitement is accompanied by a fervent hope that he will not fail in his mission. There's just enough anxiety that makes him human. It shows as a blip on the edge of the radar. But it's a byproduct of a positive, driving confidence and hope. There's a lot that's gone into this young man making it this far. And he wants to make sure he is himself at 110% of his game. This is Paul preparing for his trial. He's come a long way and he's ready to give it all. He's ready to win and be released, but he's also ready to die for what he's worked for so hard. Innocent or guilty, may Christ be honored. Having steeled himself for the trial, Paul now reveals to the Philippians a look at the deepest desire of his heart, to be with Christ. Verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul wants to be with his Savior, 
to live means to continue on serving him to the fullest. That is what is meant by to live as Christ. It means that he'll be following the example of Christ in giving himself to others. If he lives, he will live because there are others who still need to know Christ. There will be churches that need his help in growing and thriving. There will be many chances to serve Christ. The fruitful labor is the work that he's been so heavily involved in. He's willing to stick at it, not to glorify himself, but to keep bringing in a good harvest. However, in his view, to die is to advance because he will be with Christ. If he dies, he will depart and be with the Savior he's worked for so hard. Some of us get caught up so much in the business of living that we forget about the glory of dying as a Christian. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul has a death wish in the way we currently understand the word. Someone who says they want to die is usually reacting to hopelessness and desperation. They're unable to cope with their situation and they want escape into anything else. Their wish to die is based on an unwillingness to face reality, to simply live. Paul, on the other hand, sees death as the bridge to ultimate living, being with Christ. He's ready to walk over that bridge if the trial takes him there. However, he's thoroughly ready to keep living as he is now, serving Christ. His heart is just so in love with his Savior that he sees being with him as a better alternative than to serve him. He says so himself, I desire to depart, which is better by far. But deep down, he knows that if his time on earth is not meant to be over, He'll have to put off the reunion and stick to the relationship a little while longer. He hints at what he thinks is coming up in verse 24. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's anticipating he'll be released because he sees a need for the Philippian church to have him back with them. Later in this letter, he'll speak more on this. For now, he's simply reminding himself and the readers of this letter that there's still work to do. So in his heart of hearts, he really does want to be with Christ. However, it looks like he's going to have to wait. He started to predict that he'll end up back with the Philippians, and this becomes quite clear in the last two verses. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. He's pretty certain that this trial will result in his release. History has Paul being imprisoned in Rome for two years before being released in 63 AD. His release is at the end of a five-year period of incarceration that has carried him from Israel to the heart of the Roman Empire. 
His original charge had been way back over a ruckus that broke out when he preached the gospel in Jerusalem. Those who opposed the gospel had demanded his head, declaring him to be a troublemaker. But Paul, as a Roman citizen, had appealed to Caesar to prove that he had done nothing wrong in preaching the word. In doing this, he was starting a process that's much like those who appeal to our Supreme Court here in Canada. He spent five years in this process. Five years of freedom lost because he was standing up for his right to share the gospel. And what's he going to do when he gets back out again? He will go right back to the Philippians and keep sharing the gospel. The first part of this thought is a pledge. I will continue on with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. He wants to be a part of their growth as Christians. He wants to help them carry the fullness, to enjoy the fullness of the faith that they've already achieved. This is the balance, to strive for growth, but to also rejoice in what we have become so far. It's a dynamic process where each trade off and help the other. Thanking God for what he's done helps us grow closer to him. Growing closer to him helps us better see who he is and what we are in his life. He's also quite confident that his coming back to them will be a good thing for them. When he returns, it'll be a cause for celebration and a time of reunion and renewal for the church. They will be blessed by his first-hand accounts of what happened, as well as by his words and teaching. That he too will rejoice is left unsaid. But when we look at how close these parties are, it's safe to assume that Paul's joy as well will overflow on account of them. To wrap this up, what have we learned about Paul? And what have we learned from Paul in this passage? Well, we see someone who's willing to be helped. He may seem like the biblical equivalent of Superman. But right from the start, we see that he's thanking the Philippians for their help. He has given thanks for their financial help, and now he gives thanks for their prayers. They're a vital link to his ability to withstand the pressures that he's facing. Are we open to help? Or do we push people away when they offer it? Are we afraid to take help because we'll be perceived as weak or needy? We hear a lot about help these days. In some way, we all give it. But when we need it, are we open to it? I sure learned a lot about needing help as a leukemia patient. Some days I felt fine, but there were other days that challenged my hopes for survival. I needed help and took it where I got it. Some of that help was medical treatment, of course, good medical treatment. But much of the help was the companionship of my wife and family and the prayers of the saints. And yes, all Christians, brothers and sisters, are saints. Get used to that term. It fits all of us. Help can come in a lot of ways, and we need to accept it 
when we need it. I also see a Christian who hasn't lost sight of heaven. He's fully aware of his current situation. There's no detachment here from the real world. But his heart is on heaven and being with his Savior. Look at his words. To die is gain. I desire to depart, which is better by far. For him, heaven isn't just a hope or a dream. It's the real world. And he wants to be there. Heaven is usually the farthest thing from our minds. Understandably so, we're busy people. Busyness does not allow for a lot of consideration of what we call the afterlife. Paul was a busy person too, so how does he manage to be so heavenly minded? Well, he saw earth and everything else through heaven rather than the other way around. Later on, he'll describe Christians as those whose citizenship is in heaven. Keeping life in that perspective allowed him to work hard and minister hard, knowing that all of his actions were working towards a glorious finale. How do we do that? Well, I think we do it one day, one issue, one person at a time. Here's an idea. Why not try asking ourselves when we're about to do something, or buy something, or say something, what does this mean in the light of forever? Now that might get a little clumsy at times, but imagine what a difference it might make in our lives, in what we live for, and what we consider important. And finally, I see a Christian that's willing to serve on God's terms and not just his own. Our society is very consumer conscious. We shop around for the best deal. And that includes what church we go to and what role we're going to play in that church. This process can help us determine what is best for us, and that's great. But unfortunately... Being consumer conscious is also a process that can push out of our lives options that may not be as attractive, but are closer to what God would have us do. It's not easy to do the harder thing, but Paul was ready for that. He knew that there were times where being an obedient servant is more important than being a discerning shopper. However, he didn't ignore the options before him. He simply let God choose what options he should go for. He was longing for heaven, but he was ready for less. Can we say the same? I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen.